Well, it's, uh, it's great to be with you. We are halfway through a series called Life and uh, Tr- Truth and Life. Gosh, it would be awful to get the series name wrong, which is what I've done in the first line. Which is essentially asking this question, what is this book? What is this book which we call the Bible? Or what is more correctly probably a library of books? What's going on when we pick it up? And what on earth has that got to do with the way that we live our lives? That's what the the journey that we're on over these few weeks. And Tyler, a few weeks ago, used this analogy of the gym. I've just joined a gym. I don't know if you can tell. I'm right at the beginning. It's all about trajectory, guys. Thanks, guys. It's all about the... It's the thought that counts, isn't it? It's the gym membership fee that counts, really. Um... And he uses this imagery because he says we, we know it's good for us, right? We know that going to the gym is good for us. In fact, afterwards, we often feel pretty good about ourselves for having gone. But in the moment, and I can testify to this, in the moment, so much of the time, we lack the joy that we so wish we experienced whilst we were there. And it's exactly the same with reading scripture for many of us in the room. We know it gives us life. We know it speaks to something of who we are, who we were made to be, and yet we struggle with it. And every single week, we've started with almost this like Bible Readers Anonymous moment where we've all stood up and said we kind of struggle with reading Scripture. And it's absolutely right. We all struggle to some degree, or probably will have done, or will do, struggle with reading Scripture. And my um, story, just to highlight some of this, I uh, went to Soul Survivor, which was a youth festival. Hands up if you ever went to Soul Survivor as a teenager. Amazing. What an amazing heritage that's had. And it, it ended last year. But probably thousands of people would have come to faith going to that every single summer. It's an extraordinary festival. But I was, uh, take you back some years, now I'm a teenager at Soul Survivor. And the highlight for me of Soul Survivor was going into the marketplace and finding the best perfect Bible that I could possibly find with the money that I had in my pocket. That was what I did every single year. I bought a Bible every single year. I'd find the right one, the leather one. One year I got the little pocket one. We just kind of like mixed it up every single year. The thing was, this is why I was buying the perfect Bible. I wanted the right people to fancy me. And that's what you needed. That's what you needed. You needed to have the right Bible. The problem was, the problem was with my logic that every time I bought a new Bible, I realized that it looked like I didn't read my Bible. That was the issue that I had. And I I kid you not, this is absolutely what I did one year. I bought a a little pocket Bible, ESV, a bit more highbrow. And um, the the boyfriend of, uh, not the boyfriend, the, um, the brother of someone that I did fancy at the time, he had the exact same one. So I thought, that's interesting. It's going to clock something for them. So I bought this Bible. I went back to my tent and I just started like scuffing up the... The case, scuffing it all up, just thumbing my way through it, just making sure it looked like I'd read it. Needless to say, it did absolutely nothing for my chances. But we all have this story with the Bible, right? Probably not as extreme as mine. I really hope someone else in the room does have that. But we all have some kind of pain that comes with it. But here's the crux of the issue. There's a little freebie for for Phil and Sarah. Here's the crux of the issue. Here's the problem. That many of us don't love reading Scripture. Many of us don't love reading it. In fact, many followers of Jesus today, we're just not reading the Bible. We're not reading this book. Looking around a room like this, the average age in here, a city like ours, a church like ours, the likelihood is that many of us struggle to daily pick this Bible up and read it as a priority in our lives. As one author brutally put it, it's probably the best-selling book never read. It sells 100 million copies around the world every single year. Most of them are on my bookshelf because I bought one every single year. (laughs) And yet we don't read it. 
we don't read this book. And that's what this series is aiming to do. What would it look like to reclaim some of that, to see this book as truth and life? And that's the journey that we're on. So just to recap, Pete, a few weeks ago, Pete James, he opened and, and asked this question. We as the reader, when we come to Scripture, what do we bring? What's the lens through which we see this book? And more than that, what's our hunger levels to really read it? What's the baggage that we carry? And then Tyler, the week after, he asked, what, what even is this book? It's actually 66 books, more than 40 authors, written over 1,600 years in three languages, this beautiful hodgepodge of authors and writings and literature into one coherent book. And then Anna last week beautifully talked about the story of Scripture, this grand narrative that we're all being pulled into. And then Pete, in the next couple of weeks, is going to be asking a question, how do we live our lives under the submission, under the authority of this book, and how do we even read it? So today, cryptically, we're going to be looking at Scripture as the Word, and we're going to come to that language a little bit later on. But I I want you to to recognize this for this moment, that this is a hinge moment in the series, because all that's been before where we're describing what Scripture is and this beautiful story means nothing if we don't understand why we might want to trust that book. Why would we want to put our lives under the authority of it? How can we trust that this book can bring life? that we can submit ourselves to it. And then we can ask the question of what that means for our lives and and how we live our lives. But we have to ask the question, how do we know that we can trust this book? Put it another way, before we can explore our response to this book, which is really our response to God, because that's what this story is telling, we have to scratch beneath the surface of why many of us struggle to read it. That's what we really want to try and get at. So anecdotally, I think talking to many, there are a few pesky culprits. The first of which is that for many of us, we don't know how to read it. We don't know how to read this book. There's so many different types of literature, so many different types of writing. It just gets pretty confusing. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it's really hard work. Some of it's pretty straightforward, and then other bits of it are really, really difficult. Just to demonstrate what's at stake if we get it wrong as well. I don't know if you've ever looked at um, different verses in in different books, which are the same ones. So I've got this little thing that I love called the Battle of the Three Sixteens. There's some good Three Sixteens out there in the Bible. Here's the first one, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a good one, right? That's a summarizer of the whole story. That's an incredible place to start. And then what what does that love actually look like? Well, 1 John 3.16 says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Utterly challenging and utterly, utterly beautiful. And then we turn to 2 Peter 3.16, and this is what we get. His, talking about Paul's letters, contains some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. I mean, give me John or one John any day of the week, not two Peter. This stuff is hard work. It's easy to distort it. It's easy to get it wrong. It's really, really hard work. To some of us, we don't know how to read the Bible, and that might be about being given the tools to read it. And Pete's going to be talking in a couple of weeks about how we can read scripture. Hopefully, we'll see, we'll see how that goes. Lay down the challenge. Um, Some of it's about the tools that we need. Some of it's about that we don't like reading scripture. We don't enjoy it. And that might be about discipline, about what it takes to pick up this Bible before we pick up BBC News in the morning or open Twitter. But some of it's the lure of the competition, right? Pete James, in the first talk, talked 
quoting uh, Eugene Peterson, says that the Bible has been rudely elbowed out of the way by glamorous competitors. How true is that? That's certainly true in my life. So underneath those two things, I think there's another layer, though, which is that we might have a problem with what the Bible actually says. Like, we can all get on board with Jesus. He says some pretty nice stuff. Love one another. That's universal. It's pretty hard to disagree with that. There's some really nice things in there. But then you widen that out. You look at the rest of Scripture. We see polygamy. We see misogyny, genocide, warmongering. Not just in the Bible, but in the people of God themselves. I mean, that's pretty unpalatable. It's confusing at best. Mark Twain, who's an American author, he describes the Bible by saying it's both the poison and the cure. The Bible has been used for so many terrible things, and yet it's also the passage out of those things so much of the time. Like you think about the slave trade. Passages from Scripture were used for the beginning of slavery. We see it all the way through some of the Old Testament. And yet, the abolitionists were using that same scripture to describe that we have a God who takes people out of slavery. That is the trajectory of scripture. That is what we believe. Just scratching one level further than all of those three, though, and I think this underpins all of them, is really the question, can we trust the Bible? Can we trust it? Can we trust it with our lives? Can we trust it with our time? Can we trust it with our beings? Can it be a source of authority of truth? Can life even be found in something that we struggle to read so much? And I just want to dwell here for a second to to recognize the importance of this question because all of the beauty that's gone before about what's going on in Scripture, about this story of God, is, is incredible. But it's meaningless if we don't trust it. It's just a story, it's just a novel. We have to understand how we can trust this book. And I don't mean scientifically, forensically, assessing whether this thing is authentic, whether it's real. There's lots of talks that have gone on that, and they're absolutely brilliant. I mean, how can we trust it with our lives? How can we stand here today and put our lives under the authority of Scripture? So that kicks us into why we're here today, just a a small order. And before we can ask in the next couple of weeks how it affects our lives, we have to understand how we can trust this book. So specifically today, I want to address this with three questions. How can we trust what Scripture is? How can we trust where it's from? And how can we trust who it's about? How can we trust what it is? Many of us have a pretty warped understanding of what the Bible is even trying to achieve. We come with our own stuff when we start opening these pages, so we want to interrogate some of that. How can we trust where it's from? Who wrote it? Why did they write it? How do we understand it to be true? And then who, can we trust who it's about? And here's the spoiler alert. This book is all about Jesus. Anna cottoned onto it last week. This book is all about Jesus. What was his relationship with scripture? So let's start at the beginning. How can we trust what this book is? And crucially, what I'm not asking is what we want the Bible to be. Not, do, what, what, what do we, not, not what we come to the Bible and wish it to be, but what is it actually presenting us? Because here's the thing, we judge things by the measure that we bring to them, by the ruler that we get out and measure it by. And to gain a measure of trust in Scripture, we first have to understand what Scripture is even saying about itself. Just a little 
kind of anecdote to explain this. So it was my birthday on Thursday. Thanks so much for all the cards. I'll stand at the back. You can just pass them through and give them to me on your way out. Gift vouchers, very welcome. And we went out for dinner, Joe and I, my wife and I, we went out um, in Soho. We're cool kids, and it was um, a really nice dinner. We had a great time. And we get to the end of dinner, and I'm like, do you know what I'd really love at this point is an ice cream. So we do a little quick Google search, and we find that there's an ice cream shop that's open a couple of uh, streets away. And it looked great, great reviews. So we just thought, why not? Let's hop on there. It shuts in 20 minutes. We go down the road. We get in there. And suddenly, everyone's looking happy. They're having a good time. And it's, it's kind of working out well. But we, I just start to see, like, vegan ice cream. And then I see, like, free from ice cream. And then I see, like, allergy tolerance. All this kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, no, guys, we're in a vegan ice cream shop. <laughs> we're in a non-dairy ice cream shop. I cannot believe what I'm seeing. And the thing was... Nothing against vegan ice cream. I wasn't in the market for vegan ice cream. I was in the market for full-fat dairy ice cream. Now, fortunately, you'll be pleased to hear, it just turned out that there was a Ben & Jerry's shop just a couple of streets down, so we, we just left there and went down there. Now, here's the point. I've got nothing against vegan ice cream. It actually looked great. Everyone looked like they were having a good time, but I wasn't expecting to eat vegan ice cream. I came expecting to eat full dairy, and I was sorely disappointed when we walked in and realized it was vegan. Not a great analogy, but it's the one I've got. We judge things We judge things by the measure that we bring to them. And here's the key. Here's the key when we come to Scripture. It is not principally about you. It's not principally about me. It's not principally about how we live our lives, a rule book for relationships of ethical living, of morality, of church planting models, of which bus you should be taking to work in the morning. It's not principally about any of that stuff. It's a book about the living, breathing God who created the universe, who became flesh in the person of Jesus and whose spirit dwells with us right now. That is what this book is about. Is that connected to you and to me and how we live our lives in response to that in in a life of worship? 100%. But is it principally about you and me? No way. This book is about God. We see this right at the beginning of Scripture in Genesis 1.1. This is the first verse of Scripture and it says, In the beginning God. Yes, created the heavens and the earth, but in the beginning God. There was God. This book begins with God. And then the mirrored verse at the beginning of the New Testament in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. There's that pesky language again, we're going to come back to it. And the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. It starts with who he is and what he's done. And we're going to do that just from a different angle. Earlier on, we talked about the need to have tools to help us read this Bible. And one tool that we're going to look at is called the law of first mention. It means that if you want to know what a word means in Scripture, go back to the first time it was used, and it will give you a bit of a reference point of why it might be used in a similar kind of way in the future. And you don't just have to do that with words. You can do it with themes. You can do it with principles, with the purposes of God. And we're going to do that now. So when was the first time that the writing of Scripture is mentioned in Scripture? Little pop quiz. Anyone know the answer? It is difficult. Exodus 17. Well done to the man at the back. No, they didn't get it. Exodus 17. So turn to Exodus 17. uh, Or it'll be up on the screen. So just to catch us up on this story, it's one that pops up every so often at KXC. And if you're on the balcony, you're going to see a little pictorial version of it top left, which is kind of fun. And we're with the people of God, with 
the people of Israel, and they were slaves in Egypt. And after the, the plagues, and Moses, he was leading them, saying, let my people go. Eventually, he, uh, the people are let go, and he, he um, leads them out of slavery. And they meet the Amalekites, and they have this battle, which is where we're at in Exodus 17. And it says this, so Joshua fought the Amalekites, as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill, As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And this is the crucial bit. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it. Write this down on on a scroll as something to be remembered. Moses, the author of the first five books in the Bible, he goes and writes this down. And that is what we're reading. We're reading his account of what happened in that battle. That's awesome, right? We're just reading his account of what happened in that battle. God just saved the Israelites. And God says, write it down. Because you're going to want to remember this. This is going to shape your identity in the years, in the decades, in the centuries, in the millennia to come. And that's what we're reading right now. This is going to shape your identity. Scripture here is painting a picture of who this God is, what he's like, what he does. Just to put it another way, um, so Joe and I, we have what we call a memories jar. So um, it's kind of, it's pretty much as sad as it sounds actually, but it's, 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 it's also kind of cool. So we, um, throughout the year, When something profound happens in our life, it might be an extreme high or an extreme low, we'll write that down on a memory and we'll put it in a jar. And the thing is, we get to the end of the year, 31st of December, and we open that jar up and we get them all out and we read them all out. I cannot tell you how profound it is when we do that. We're crying, we're laughing, because we've forgotten all of the things that happened that were really moving to us, that were forming us over the course of that year. This is like a macro version of that for the people of God remember what I've done for you. Remember, because we so easily forget who this God is and what he has done. We need to remember this Bible, this scripture, these books are about him. That's the first mention. Now, this is the second one. So flick on a few pages. We're now at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. We've had the Ten Commandments by now. And the people of God in that moment are being invited into a covenant relationship with God. That, that he will be their God, that they will be his people. Why? Because God is wanting to make them a people of priests, that they would go and bless the earth, that they would go and take that blessing that God has showered on them to everyone else. That's the heritage that we are part of. So they've had the Ten Commandments and then another 52, and then they have this. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. And in crucially, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. Now, it's kind of ironic because they didn't do any of the stuff that the Lord said that they should do, but they wrote it down. Why did they write it down? They wrote it down because God is outlining his relationship, the terms of what it will mean to be his people. And that's crucial. First mention, the story of God. The second mention, the relationship between God and his people. The story of who God is. That's what this scripture is. The story of who our God is. 
and then what his relationship is with us. Here in Exodus, the story of what he's done and the covenant that humanity is invited into. Later, it's the person of Jesus who is revealed, who is God revealed, and what he's done for us to be in relationship with him. Later still, the spirit who is poured out on his church, and then this invite for us to go and invite other people into that relationship. That's what this scripture is about. And the thing is, too many of us don't trust this book because we think it's a manual for life. And we come with problems when we do that because we're coming with the wrong lens. We're coming with the wrong expectations of what scripture should be rather than trying to assess it on the measure that it says what it is. This is the story of God and about our response to him in worship. So this is a story about who God is and how he reveals himself and our relationship with him. And that gives us a a basis for the purpose of this book to tell the the best story that's ever been lived and our place within it. But it leads us to ask further questions, right, that the church has actually been asking for a few centuries. Where did this book come from? Is it from God? Is it from people just like you and me bumbling along doing their best and trying to write down a few notes as they go about doing it? Is there anything unique to this book compared to reading Harry Potter every night? What is the difference between the, the two? Is it holy? We talk about it as holy scripture. What does that even mean? What does it mean for it to be a divine document? And the problem is bits seem to contradict. They seem to make mistakes. So how how can we put all this together? How can we trust where this book actually stems from? And here's the extremes that we're going to be working with. And extremes can be unhelpful, but they can also just help make a point. We want to lay out two opposing schools of thought with, with how scripture is written. On the one hand, it's that it's solely divine. It's the download from God that, although we have authors, because they're the the, the title names of all of these books, they're literally basically just sitting there at their desk with their scribe, and whatever God is putting in there, a direct download. God has the agenda, he has the script, and, and they're just the penmanship. That's on one hand. And that leaves us with a bit of a divine behavioral manual, right? We read in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is God breathed. And that would be the the scripture that you'd go to for this. On the other hand, something that's solely human, that yes, it's a story of a God who is good, but it's just a collection of thoughts. It's opt-in if that works for us. It's probably a list of poems of some lovely of literature, but some of which is going to be wrong. It's going to be incompatible with other bits of it because that's what it means for it to be human. Those are the two schools of thought. And we're going to look at a few scriptures to try and understand where we might locate ourselves on this um, line. So firstly to Jeremiah, who was a prophet in the Old Testament. Um, And I'm going to read it from here. So it says this in Jeremiah 36, turn to it if you've got a Bible in front of you. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Now, if we were reading our Bible in the morning one day, we'd just skip over that. That's kind of interesting. That's a nice thought of why Jeremiah needs to write down some of the prophetic thoughts he's had. I just want to do some of the maths for you. That's 25 years of prophetic work that, that Jeremiah has been doing. And God is saying, go and write it down. 25 years. Imagine in 25 years from now, I went and asked you, can you just write down a little download of everything that you've been sensing? I mean, that is a tall order. He grabs his mate, Baruch, who is a professional scribe, and that's exactly what they do. We don't know how long it took them, whether it was weeks, whether it was months, whether it was years. They write down this whole process. 
And the rest of the story is kind of irrelevant, except it's, it's also brutal, so I'm going to share it. The king, they show that these um, prophetic words and, and um, all of their notes to the king, and the king, who's deeply unhappy with it, burns all of them, and they have to do it all again. They've got to do it all again. Just imagine that for a second. Anyway, here's the point. Here's the point. It's beautifully human, and it's beautifully divine. Beautifully, beautifully human. And beautifully divine. Here's another one. So this is Jesus in Mark 12. And he's teaching the scriptures. And it says this. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my uh, Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. He's quoting Psalm 110 here. And he says, David himself, beautifully human, Speaking by the Holy Spirit, beautifully divine, declared Psalm 110. Here's the thing. We desperately want clarity. I certainly do. Is this a divine document? Is it a human document? If it's divine, it means it's flawless. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. If it's human, it means that there's going to be laced with all sorts of problems. For Jesus, it's not an either or. It's a both and. It's fully divine, this document. And it's fully, fully human. The holy, sacred, unique word of God is spoken through the fragility of humanity. Who does that remind you of? This holy scripture, fully divine, is spoken through the fragility of humanity. And that is a tension for sure in how we, the reader, work out what we do and how we do the hard work of scripture, but it's not opposed. We do have to do the the hard work of scripture. I just want to pause pause at this point. Because we do have to do the hard work of Scripture. And let me just explain what I mean by that. We talked earlier about some of the difficult things that can come up in Scripture. And we've got some tools that are going to help us in figuring out what we might do. We read Scripture. That might be called revelation. We then want to apply it to our lives and to the culture around us. That's application. But there's a really crucial bit in the middle called interpretation. What is going on when we read Scripture? And what does that mean for us? That's hard work. That's really, really hard work, and it means that we have to read Scripture. That's the starting point. We have to read it. Soak in this thing. Get yourself used to it. Get used to the language. Get used to the terminology. Get used to the characters so that we can do that work. Like a a few of us, we stand up here every week, partly because we humbly believe God has asked us to do that, And we try and teach these scriptures faithfully from what we believe that they're actually saying to us. But we all, personally and communally, have to do that hard work. You can't live your scriptural life through the medium of someone else. You need to read this book. You have to personally grapple with the issues that are in it. We have to communally talk and debate and understand what it looks like for us to be a community of God that living faithfully to these scriptures. That means you have to read them. And just a quick note, so we've talked about them as being fully divine and fully human. That's in the writing of them, but in the reading of them, I just want to challenge you, don't just bring yourself when you read Scripture, invite the Spirit to come and speak to you through them. Invite the Spirit to bring these words to life. Eugene Peterson calls it, this is, this is spiritual writing, needs spiritual readers. We have to read through the lens of what the Spirit might be saying to us. You're not alone in that task. But you've got to invite the Spirit into that. 
we bring our fragile humanity and we encounter the living God through these texts. So we have an understanding of what this book is, where it comes from. And finally, we have to ask this question, how can we trust who this book is about? And this is where we're going to come back to the language that we left at the beginning about the word of God. Well done for being um, patient. So here's a few ways that we can talk about this language. And before we talk about them, I just want to say it's language of, of action. It's language of communication. Like think of how we just use words. It's not totally dissimilar from that. It's as if something's trying to break through and catch our attention. And so far, we, as you'd expect in a series talking about the Bible, we focused on the word as being scripture. But when we hear about this word, it's doing something more than just the words on a page. It's revealing who God is. That's what you mean by the word of God, something that is revealing who God is. And I want to introduce two other ways that we might want to talk about the word of God. The first is this, that you and I carry the word of God in us. That is an incredible responsibility. It's also incredibly beautiful. You and I carry this message of what God has done, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those around us, what he's doing in this city, what he's doing in this nation, what he's doing around the world. And we need to proclaim that message. That's a talk for a whole other time about what it looks like to do that. But I just want us to take that seriously for a second. It's not just recorded on pages. It's not even just recorded in a person. It actually lives in us. And we have a a responsibility to share that with as many people as we possibly can do. You and I carry this authority to share what God is doing in his world. And just as in the written pages of scripture, it's the divinity of God housed and written by the fragility of humanity. So all of us in our own fragility somehow are carrying the spirit of God around in us. That's what it means to carry this message And let's take that that seriously. But here's ultimately what I want to talk about when we talk about the word of God. And here's the secret I've been keeping for most of this talk. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. We could talk for another hour about the trustworthiness of the Bible, about how the canon came to be, about the Dead Sea Scrolls and everything in between. There are some genuinely brilliant talks about that. But this is all about whether we can trust the person of Jesus. That is ultimately what matters here. We read earlier, John 1, 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's not talking about Scripture. That's not talking about Scripture was there at the beginning. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus was there at the beginning. And I read last week from Matthew 28, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth was being, has been given to me, not to Scripture, to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. In John 5, it says it even more starkly. You study, this is Jesus talking, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. They testify about who Jesus is and what he does in his world. Scripture is the word of God because it reveals the the word of God in Jesus. That is what makes scripture the word of God. It is revealing something of God. It's revealing his purposes, his nature, what he's like, what he does. Think of it this way. There's, there's a link ultimately between all of these three things. Ultimately, Jesus is the word of God. He's the truest thing there has ever been. And we trust in the person of Jesus because we're followers of him. 
But authority is mediated ultimately through words and speech. Let me give you an example. Pete's my boss. If Pete tells me, sends me an email, says, John, I really need you to, whatever it is. (laughs) That was an unusual noise, sorry. Um, I need you to go and do this. I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what that says, not because the email said it, but because Pete said it. His authority has been mediated to me in that moment through the words and speech that I see on a computer screen in front of me. John 14 says this, Jesus saying to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus is the word of God, and we obey him through what's in this scripture, because it testifies to who he is. That is why we follow him. That's why we obey what he says in this book. We believe scripture is the word of God because we trust and follow Jesus. Andrew Wilson, who's a theologian, he wrote a lovely little book about scripture. He puts it another way. He says, I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. This starts with him. It starts in a faith in who he is, what he's done, and then we obey what's in these scriptures because they reveal who he is. That's the journey that we are on. And let me just end with this. Most of us, we come to scripture and we give credence to its authority because we attribute worth to it. And that's how truth tends to work in our culture, right? You think about money. When you get a five-pound note out your pocket, it's not that that note is actually worth five pounds. It's that we've all agreed that that is worth five pounds when I give it to the guy and have lunch. He will take it as a sign of five pounds. What scripture does is actually the opposite. This book has authority, not because we say it has authority, but because it reveals a God in the person of Jesus who loves you, who's for you, who pursues you, who wants to heal you, wants to make you whole, and he attributes worth to you. He attributes truth to you. That's what makes this book so, so powerful. It reveals a Jesus who says the truest thing about you is that you're loved, that you're known, that you're seen, 